You're listening to Wordsmith, the poetry podcast, presented by Miriam Hechtman and Kelly Van Nelson. On this program, we invite poets from all over the world to join us for a one-on-one conversation about their poetry, their craft, and what poetry means to them. From how poetry played out in childhood to its current practice, it's all about the poet and the poem and what's really happening behind the words. Here in Australia, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we produce this program, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This special edition of Wordsmith has been produced for the Melbourne Fringe Festival 2020. Poets in this special edition include Tabani Schumer, Joshua Bennett, Raina Leon, Lang Liav and Ali Whitelock. We have asked poets to take us back to the beginning. How did poetry play out in your childhood? Melbourne Fringe would not be the same without Tabani Tashuma on the lineup. Ranked one of the top 50 slam poets in the world, he knocked me right out of the park when I went up against him in a major slam, and I'm still in awe of his ridiculously good spoken word genius. Tabani, let's dive straight in with a chat about life before Melbourne. So yeah, I grew up in Harare, and I, I didn't leave Zimbabwe until after high school. So like the majority of my formative years were there. And I only, I started writing poetry, I would say in primary school, but at the time I didn't know I was writing poetry. It was, it was more influenced by like hip hop and rap. So I, I was playing with those ideas of, you know, the, the poetic tools, like, you know, rhyme and alliteration and metaphor. And I was playing with them in a more musical context, or at least that's how I framed it. Because my my understanding and my introduction to poetry was kind of... So it wasn't until years later, really, that I started to kind of fall into it as a creative practice then it was kind of just like something I did for fun, something I did to express myself. And, and I guess like a lot of, cause I'm, I'm a big fan of hip hop. So like a lot of my hip hop idols, <laughs> I, I would like be trying to emulate them. And it's like that, that learning curve of imitation where you just like copy out the lyrics of <laughs> everyone you appreciate before you actually start writing your own. So in that sense, that was like the beginning of my poetry writing journey. Um, and after, after high school, I went to America. I was in America for a few years and then South Africa for a period and then came to Melbourne. And I only started performing spoken word when I was in Melbourne. I didn't actually know that there was a spoken word scene. Like it was never on my radar that like this medium of performance existed. Um, Cause I've always been interested in theatricality and like, you know, acting and stage and just that element of performance. But I was never aware that spoken word was like a way that you could express. So I literally remember my first open mic I went to almost accidentally and I was like, oh, I do have a bunch of poems that I've never actually read. (laughs) Um, Let me just hop on the open mic and like read them out and see what happens. (laughs) Um, And they ended up giving me a feature and the rest, as they say, is history. Oh, there's so much in what you've just said there. I don't even know where to start, but Harare is an interesting place. I I, I lived in South Africa twice as well and went on a very major road trip through Africa and through Harare and it's full Mm. of vibrant life, isn't it? And I can see why you would get so much inspiration to do creative work there. And I, I love your comment as well about 
dead white guys. It's like the dead poet society, isn't it? And, it, and that's not yeah. what poetry is today. It's part of poetry. It's still there in the history. Of yeah, it's there still there. Hmm. But there's this whole new scene of which you, you're a part of that is performance poetry and is very cool and hip and contemporary in terms of both mm. material and style. And yes. uh, you're at the forefront of that. Because I, the way I see it is, you know, with page poetry, you have the, the structure and the body on the page as an element of the poem. And that was something that I never learned until much later. You know, I thought the poem was consisted, you know, solely of the poetic tools in the writing, the writing itself. Um, but I never looked at the, the actual visible structure of a poem and the line breaks and, you know, the stanza breaks as, you know, as an element of the poem itself, giving it motion, giving it vibrance. In, in a spoken word performance, you don't have that body, but you do have your literal body and your body can give the poem that that extra element of life and you know it can make it more dynamic and for me like it's it's a good pacing and also a good way to learn the poems because I know for a lot of the slams I like to try my best to memorize poems I'm really bad at it but I do try and just incorporating the body helps me to remember the lines it's like that link of mind and body it's like you know okay if I'm moving like this if I'm you know raising my tone like this using this particular inflection like it helps set markers for where I am in the poem um so it's definitely something that I like to have a play with and have been playing with because I feel like if I look over all the performances I've done, they've slowly <laughs> been getting more and more theatrical as I go. Cause I'm just like having more fun with it and being like, okay, how far, how far can I push this? How like, how far can we explore with that, that element of audience interaction and making it more than just, you know, the words that I'm saying, but making it like a whole performance in on in and of itself. It definitely makes it very memorable for someone watching you. Uh, almost all of your pieces stick in my head, which is a great thing. Um, would you like to read a piece for our listeners? Have you got a piece you could? So, hmm, this piece is an older piece. It's it's about slam poetry since like we're kind of talking about performance and slam. Um, I've had my qualms with slam because I, I have mixed feelings about the, the whole rating of poetry and like competitive arts in general. I feel like it's very difficult to objectively measure, you know, artistic performance. The way I see it is like, I like the analogy of music awards and music rating it's like you have different genres for different like different um, awards for different genres and then in a slam you you have that it's like every every performer comes with a unique narrative a unique style and you know that could be classified as a genre in and of itself and you have all these different genres mashed together and you're kind of trying to rate them along the same objective scale. It's like, you can't really say, oh, which is better, this country song or this rock song or this hip-hop song, because they, they're all good for different reasons. So that was the birthplace of this poem where I was kind of over slam. Ironically, it was one of the pieces that ended up winning <laughs> the Grand Slam so <laughs> let's hear it and then so, let's talk anyway, about the grand slam the piece is called the death of slam dearly beloved we are gathered here today to acknowledge the death of slam with the pop locking hip-hop aestheticism that today gave the muted voices and had a sound that would make the death jam 
Now, this is not to be mistaken for a to the death slam. That's known to get kind of gory. So I slotted it in another category, which in itself is a whole other story. And in the same fashion that Mufasa cautioned Simba against the Shadowlands, we won't go there. Or maybe we will. We all just want to be kings or queens, emperors, empresses, general titles that possess regal headdresses. I digress, for here lies Slam. And to any of you who are accusatorily curious, I plead innocence and testify I did not kill it. Allegedly. For this is not death as you know it, but transfiguration, the weaving of the fabric of the universe in words to make anything from nothing and everything from something, not just one thing, but all. How small to see this death as less than alchemy. After flicking the ferryman, a philosopher's stone is fair. In our infinite immortality, we will forever wonder the peaks and valleys of verbal purgatory chagrined by the pop culture misnomer of being known as the dead poet society. Oh, captain, my captain, where? is a captain when you need one, or a pastor, some solemn official to officiate this service. I heard it said that to be a wordsmith is a clean and renewable so source of energy, so it comes as no surprise that so much spoken word in Melbourne is solar-powered. But let the knell toll on this hour, knowing here we staged the stage and left our mark. This creed I speak is the doctrine of lost souls, adopted in spite of self-emancipation postponed, honed into a skill of sorts, a satire of vulnerability, a reliving of past trauma that still projects in my dreams vividly, a deconstruction of being in every metaphor and simile, a mirror of the crowd held up in reflective symmetry the mimicry of my imposter syndrome sending quivers to my limbs convulsions you can't ignore stigmata of this self-sacrifice where i am twice shy by this love bite where the price of fame is too high and to be precise my second coming will be premature the self-deprecation it takes to get there begins to lose its allure in a demure demonstration device solely to entertain to launch yet land in vain in death let it transform to curb the pain where here we buried fears and friends and foes and etched on their tombstones rest in poetry. Ali Whitelock is a Scottish poet and writer. Her new poetry collection, The Lactic Acid in the Calves of Your Despair, is published by Wakefield Press. And her debut collection, And My Heart Crumples Like a Coke Can, also published by Wakefield Press, has a forthcoming UK edition by Polygon Edinburgh. Her memoir, Poking Seaweed with a Stick and Running Away from the Smell, was launched at Sydney Writers' Festival to critical acclaim in Australia and the UK. She's read her work at festivals and events around the world, including the Edinburgh Fringe 2018 and 2019. I'd love to know what role poetry played in your childhood, if any. Yeah. What you sure. remember. Tell us. There was none. Are there any other questions? <laughs> it's like, none. There wasn't any. Like, you know, I guess the only nod to poetry would be on um, Valentine's Day. You know, Robbie Burns, my love is like a red, red rose, right? Old Lang Syne, it's a song, but it's kind of a poem, I guess. You know, New Year's Eve. Um, there wasn't any, there wasn't any, there weren't any books around in our house. No, you know, my parents didn't read. It was, you know, super working class, super hard working. Like, who had time to read you know children to feed just you know hard kind of a hard life in those early days and yeah there wasn't any anything like that I mean in terms of art there were other things my mother was great at doing artsy crafts with us kids to kind of keep us entertained you know but there wasn't any reading and um, so consequently I, I grew up not reading and kind of going to school and reading the minimum that I had to read and, and I've really had to force myself to read in later life because it's just not something that I did or knew you know and that's you know that's my confession 
I, I listen. I listen because I often confession. hear you often hear people talking about the writing about writing, and they will say, "If you want to write, first you must read, read, read." You know that is a mantra. When I, I had already, I I sort of wrote my first book, which was a memoir, without really having read much at all, and so I've never subscribed to that theory that you must read in order to write. Although you know 900,000 people would disagree with me but that's my experience of it and what would you, you know? say then about writing as a child was there any inclination no I I the I kind of started my sister moved away to London when I was 20 I was still living in Scotland maybe I was 18 19 and in those days there was no internet I know I look really really young <laughs> In those days, you had to write a letter and post it to your sister in London. And and so I used to take great delight in sitting down and writing letters to her, which I thought were wildly entertaining. And I used to illustrate them in all sorts of strange things. And and so I guess if, if my writing started anywhere, it started there. You know, I'd send them to her. That was the end of it. And then about three or four years ago, she actually presented me with a box of all of those letters that I'd written to her 30 years ago in London I didn't even know she had them I didn't even know she really read them you know but I had I had great fun writing them so when I think back to when I started writing it was that it was just writing letters without any any sense of any outcome or this might come to think something or I'm now a writer it's just like this is so awesome making myself laugh while I write these letters, you know, it was as simple as that. And so that's where my writing started. So would you really. say that that humour was a big part of that writing? Because, you know, you're writing. Yeah. I think, you know, there can be super sad poems. Um, the poet James Tate, who I spoke about the other night in an interview, so um, I hate to repeat myself, but he's quoted as saying... I like my sad poems, but I like my funny poems too. Um, but if I can break a reader's heart and make them laugh in the same poem, then that's the best. And without really knowing why, somehow for me, intuitively, when I write, I um, uh, when I get a, a kind of a sad thing going, somehow humour will come in. You know, it's not something I think about or try to do. It's, I guess it's all a product of my upbringing, my culture. Everything in Scotland is funny when you're growing up and especially in that real, <laughs> real black humour when you're kind of living in sort of poor areas or, and, you know, and, and not having much laughter. You do have laughter and you have to laugh. And so I guess that's why my writing is infused with the sort of humour in strange places, humour that goes alongside sadness and tenderness. And somehow that makes the funny stuff funnier, I think. And the funny bits make the sad stuff sadder, I think. Yeah, <laughs> but it's I mean, not something I think about. It's just how it so happens. It's just how it comes out. And it's very much you, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I love, I love humour. I love comedy so much. And part of me wishes that I could have been a stand-up comedian. I just love to make people laugh. And, um, and so, you know, somewhere, somewhere along the line, I guess I managed to do that a wee bit in my poems. But I'm not brave enough to be a stand-up comedian. Certainly not now. Not yet. <laughs> I'm too busy pushing my piano around. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can see that on stage. <laughs> so, okay, so you're, you're 20, 19, 20, you've been writing letters Take us through the next part of your journey where writing played a role for you and who inspired you? Well, the next part of the journey is I find myself in Australia when I'm 30. So I've done nothing other than write letters to my sister. I failed HSC English or I was, yeah, I was removed from the English department and put into geography, right? Because I didn't understand why we had to analyse things. I couldn't. I just didn't. I, I, my brain doesn't deconstruct stuff well <laughs> and so I was removed from English I didn't do the HSC I finished school came to Australia when I was 30 no writing no writing no writing 
got to age 40 and um and I'd been working in cafes and having a lovely life in Sydney and I um I just suddenly one day thought I surely there must be more surely there must be something else I could be doing other than carrying as I, I that sort of came as a bit of a lightning bolt one day I when I was carrying some soup to a table for two customers I kind of went oh my god this is what I do with my days carry soup to tables you know there's nothing wrong with that and it certainly served me well but I needed something more than that then so I kind of went on the lookout for a course that I could do that would make me really windswept and interesting and and that would suddenly make me this more 3D human in a way you know and I could dazzle people at dinner parties with my sort of you know wonderful new art form that I've just discovered <laughs> but I, so I, I went on, I didn't go online, I guess I went to the community college and picked up the magazine because there wasn't any internet then. Well, I wasn't using it. it was, I guess, yeah, I guess I was 40. There was internet, but there wasn't. <laughs> How old are you, Ellie? <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, so anyway, I, read, I, I enrolled in a course and it was like painting for beginners because I thought if you were creative, it must mean that you painted. I didn't really know that creativity really meant anything other than putting colour on a, a canvas, right? So I did painting for beginners and I was totally crap at it. I had no affinity for it whatsoever. And I was like, oh God, you know, I thought that was going to be the thing that would finally make me interesting. And then I thought, well, let's try something else. So then I went online, uh, I went, went to my, <laughs> the brochure and I saw um, photography, photography for beginners. And I think this is for me. This is totally my thing that I found it. Went to the thing, totally not interested at all. Couldn't, couldn't be less interested. And so I thought, well, what are we going to try now? So then there was a course on, you know, cooking and I thought yeah okay I'll try it when I couldn't care less in desperation I get to my sort of dog-eared little brochure for WEA and um, I went oh creative writing for beginners I thought well I've tried everything else I'll give it a go right so I somewhat reluctantly showed up for the first night and my mind was blown wide open and I don't think I've ever gone a day without writing since so what it was, was it what blew your mind it was um well the 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 guy running it was just this really awesome guy super chill there was maybe 10 or 12 of us in the room and you know we we went it was for six weeks one night a week for six weeks so we were to bring a piece of writing the next week and we all just have a chat about it you know so it was just that informal and so yeah, he'd said to us that that on that first night. So, you know, go away and write something. Anyway, I raced home. I couldn't get to my computer quick enough. I started battering out stuff. And the process of writing took me to somewhere in myself, which I had no idea that place even existed. I never felt more myself in my entire life. I was just, I was just in, in heaven. I was in heaven. Uh, well, it's from the Coke Can collection, and my heart crumples like a Coke can. And this is a poem <clears throat> written as I am, as, uh, as someone who migrated to Australia. And the poem, it doesn't celebrate how amazing I, my life has been in, in Australia. I've had a great life here and continue to have a great life. But when you're a migrant, you're always going to compare the place where you are with how amazing the country that you left was, you know, and it's not true, but there's a hole in me as a migrant and one imagines one's own country is going to fill that hole. It doesn't. So that's just my little um, disclaimer before I read this poem. <clears throat> this is called The Blue of God's Fucking Eyes. <clears throat> Australia, I see you differently now. I am drifting, my bags are packed, I am trundling backwards away from you on my own internal travelator, you used to be enough. 
your coconut dipped lamingtons, your greasy chicle rolls, your postcard fucking views, your she'll be right. Australia, I am far from right. I have aged. What I thought I wanted changed. What I have is no longer enough. A bald man in the street once told me it is an age thing. Someone else with hair, arms flailing on a deserted beach under the hell which is a January sun, roared to me above an ocean so blue like it was reflecting God's own fucking eyes. How can this not be enough? And I will confess, Australia, I do not know. And I am not alone. Sure, the Sydney blue gums feel it too. We peel and shed in unison, each of us attempting to escape our own skins. Australia, I leak in your searing heat. I swim in pools of my own sweat and wake from menthol dreams of frosts and snow spread thick like wedding cake icing. I dream of winds that bite and howl up tenement closes, of back doors that slam shut with a reassuring bang I have not heard here. Of course, I dream of other things too. Twice this week, I broke my neck in dreams. The week before, an old man I met as I walked the dog by the sea appeared by my bed in a yellow Macintosh and matching sou'wester, drenched as though he'd just circumnavigated the world's oceans in an unseaworthy vessel single-handedly. He was bearing books all of them dry. Australia, I cannot tell you exactly what I am looking for. All I can tell you is it is not here. Dr. Joshua Bennett is the Mellon Assistant Professor of English and Creative Writing at Dartmouth College. He's the author of three books of poetry and criticism, The Sobbing School, published by Penguin, Being Property Once Myself, published by Harvard University Press, and his most recent book of poetry, Ode, also published by Penguin. His writing has been published in the New York Times, the Paris Review, and many other places. His first work of narrative non-fiction, Spoken Word, A Cultural History, is forthcoming from Knopf. Poetry was everywhere, you know. Um, my older sister had Maya Angelou's Phenomenal Woman taped to the front of her bedroom door. So every time I left the house, I sort of walked past that poem. Uh, my father was a deacon. My mother ran vacation Bible school in our church. Uh, my sister was on the lead altos, you know, the alto section. And so I was always in church. I was always around um, the poetry of American preaching. It was a very intimate part of my childhood. And I mean, this is an argument that various sort of Black literary critics make is that actually sort of the first Black poets in the United States are Black preachers. And so I always had this sense that um, poetry was something you shared with people in a public venue. That was one thing but always that there was also this kind of mystical element to poetry and to language that actually saying a certain sequence of words a certain way as part of a ceremony or ritual could change the material world around you. So the, the stakes were cosmic, I guess, of the poetry I grew up with. And I tried to maintain that sensibility about it as I got older. The, uh, whatever I put on the page, I had to believe that it had the capacity to change my life and change the lives of the people that I loved, you know, so... Poetry was all around me and I always wrote it. You know, I, I wrote poems when I was four years old. My mom still has, you know, a shoebox full of those written poems. But I also would improvise these sermons, you know, for up to an hour at a time uh, on Sunday afternoons and my whole family would gather around to watch. Um, so they, they always made space, I guess, for my voice in one way or another. And did you understand it was poetry? 
No, I didn't have that word for it, I don't think. I think I called them stories, if I remember correctly. I feel like my sense of it was always that I was creating a kind of narrative um, and that it was fine that most of them were fictional. At least the narratives I put on the page were about uh, pirates and magical rings uh, that could bend the elements. I mean, a lot of it, I think, was just riffs on Captain Planet and Power Rangers and some of the television I was watching at the time. But, I mean, I don't know. I wrote, it seemed like almost... I'm trying to think. I mean, now I write pretty much every day. And I do think even as a young person, it was part of a daily routine for me to write something. So it's, it's been an intimate part of my daily practice for a while. And do you, were you instructed to do that? Or is that something that was just your thing? Hmm. Yeah, reading was a punishment, but not writing, <laughs> uh, which was fascinating. And I mean, when I say punishment, it was more sort of get out of the way. Like we have stuff we need to do in the house. So go read, go sit down and read the dictionary or read one of your many books and sort of get out of our hair. Read uh, the where, dictionary? Yeah. Oh, no. I had a, the big red dictionary in my parents' house. I read all the time. My mother, I don't think once my entire childhood told me what a word meant. Anytime I asked her what a word was or to explain a concept, she would tell me to go look it up and so. And do you think even at a young age, there was an intention behind what you were writing or it was more just free kind of? Yeah. I mean, I I do think this kind of through line has remained, which is that I really even then was just trying to get out what was in my head. I had all these strange stories that would just unspool over the course of a day. These were kind of active characters that I lived with for many years. And so my sense was really that I was just a scribe for whatever was happening in my interior world. And I think now, of course, there's more of a kind of theoretical and historical bet to my scholarship. And I think the poetry is more confessional. But there's still, I think, that sense that um, I'm trying to get the music out, you know, that there's, it's chaos in here. Uh, and poetry is part of how I render it and try to create these bridges uh, between myself and friends and strangers who I imagine are often having a kind of chaotic experience as well with their own cognition and are looking for room to share that experience. At least that's what I think of as, as the, the beauty of sharing poetry. Mm. And I am, um, I'm curious because I know you've got also a background more in spoken word. Mm-hmm. When you're writing, do you feel like you're writing for it to be spoken? Yes. Always. I can't get outside of it. I've, I've, I've tried. Uh, <laughs> I think if, If I put a poem on the page in particular, it has to sound beautiful when I give it to the air. Or I feel like I've I've left something on the table, as it were. So that's part... It's key. Oh, go ahead, please. So that's part of your practice then. I mean, it's part of your craft is knowing how it sounds. Yeah, I have to know how it sounds. To me, if it it doesn't sound good, the, the poem's not good. You should just go work on it some more. That, that's it's just always been my sensibility about the work in part because of my spoken word background, I think, and starting in Poetry Slam. I mean, there's something quite democratic about the fact that what you wrote for that occasion uh, has to reach an audience of strangers. It has to reach many people who explicitly almost don't read poetry. Like part of the reason they're there is because maybe page poetry doesn't quite do it for them. Right. And so when I started to write books, my sense was that that was still maybe my primary audience in a way. Um, People who might hear me and say, you know, I don't like poetry that I was taught in school, but whatever it was that you did, you know, if that's poetry, maybe there might be something to it. Right. Um, And I think throughout my entire career that that's been my focus is the people who don't think poetry is for them. And who really have been historically, you know, barred, I think, even from publishing their work or understanding themselves as part of an American canon of poetry. This is for uh, for my boy, Danny, uh, who I was speaking to on Facebook Messenger the other day. We grew up uh, together. And uh, this is still life with first best friend after Jericho Brown. Danny in the scrum and his hands are metal arcs, their fulvous ascent. Danny after the fact. Danny listening to you weep, quiet as this umpteenth L must be kept. Danny does what all best friends who growth spurt first must do. Danny defends. Danny deflects all classroom heat, the jokes that land like lash and linger. Danny suspended like twice. 
Danny can't safeguard in absentia. Danny talks about his daddy, same way you do yours when yours goes phantom. Danny ethics, Danny don't go missing. Danny forged in flame, Danny igneous, Danny obsidian, Danny covert nerd on black ops mission. So Danny magic cards, Danny Charizard. Danny still blacker than you, depending on that day's definition. Danny bigger Thomas and Big Bird and Big Pun all in the same bookcase. Danny all-inclusive literary tradition. Danny claims your block. It's very bricks as kin. You tell him duty is a dead idea. Danny won't listen. Danny principles. Early 20s, you talk tough and Danny gets defensive like you do school, Jay. Someone starts problems out here, you call me. That's my business. Danny stabbed twice and shot once and still smooth as a piston. Danny invincible. Danny illegible. Danny family. Nobody else checks in on dad when you forget to miss him. Mm. Thank you. No worries. Can you tell us a bit about that poem? Sure. Uh, That poem is about childhood and violence and I guess the way I grew up in the forms of sociality, right, that Black and brown boys developed to survive and also to come to know each other that part of the, I guess part of the language we had around intimacy was really forged through these dangerous encounters, you know, and one of the, the, the first ways we learned to say I love you was that we would defend each other from harm you know, harm from strangers, harm from classmates. Um, and even sometimes I think from the sort of psychological harm of our homes or our sort of lived environments. And so uh, this poem is about, you know, my first best friend, my, my boy Danny, um, who I'm still close with. You know, he's, he's reached out to me throughout the entire pregnancy. And, and you know, we've kept close uh, online. He's a barber, lives in New York, um, pretty close still to the, the old neighborhood. And um you know, when you're little, you don't have money. So you exchange talents, you know, in the economy of childhood. So I was really good at telling time and, you know, I would work with Danny on that and he would help keep me from getting beat up. And, you know, we were, we were thick as thieves, you know. How did he mind. feel? How did he feel about that poem? He really likes the poem. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about <laughs> it when the book first came out. So I think, I think Danny always appreciates that. I don't know, part of my work is, is so that my friends and family and the people I grew up admiring can be literature, you know? And I think he understands that, that that's, you know, a part of my larger intellectual project is that like our hometown, the things we grew up eating and listening to and watching and, and, and loving, I'm gonna make sure that that gets out and that becomes Americana, you know, I'm gonna honor it. So do you consider yourself part historian? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, as someone who, has, you know, my son's godfather is a historian and I know like dis- discipline is very important, <laughs> you know, uh, in, in my field. So I, I wouldn't say I'm a historian so much as someone for whom uh, history is very important and primary. I think historical sources mean a great deal. I would say I'm someone who tries to use poetry to attend to gaps in the historical record. Cause I think sometimes poetry goes where history cannot um, and that there are gaps in our ability even to know parts of the past um, that poetic exploration is especially suited, I think, uh, to help us with. So that's what I would say. Raina J. Leon is a black and Afro-Boricua Philadelphian. She is a mother, daughter, sister, madrina, comadre, partner, poet, writer, and teacher educator. She believes in collective action and community work, the profound power of holding space for the telling of our stories and the liberatory practice of humanizing education. She is the author of three collections of poetry, Canticle of Idols, Boogeyman Dawn and Sombra, Dislocate and the chapbooks Profeta Without Refuge and Naureto to Atabe 
Essays on the Mothering Self. Her poetry, non-fiction, fiction and scholarly work has been published in well over 100 journals and anthologies. Poetry, um, I came to me, I came to it, um, we entangled together <laughs> um, as when I was really a child. Like I started writing my first, uh, started writing poetry and fiction when I was eight. I remember my first poem. It was in my third grade class with Mrs. Mazuka. We did the diamante form. <laughs> I still have it somewhere because I'm a hoarder. I keep everything. So I know it's still here. Um, and um, so I give a lot of credit to Mrs. Mazuka of like introducing me um, to especially poetic form, which has been a really huge concern for me. Um, a lot of my, my work focuses on form. Um, and, but my mom is a poet. And so she could see that I needed the, the outlet that writing provided, whether poetry or fiction. And I remember writing, I, I really identified more as a fiction writer early on when I was a child. And I would write these very, very sad stories, sad, sad stories. And I would give them to my mom and I'd ask her to read them. And she'd read them very carefully. And then she'd say, oh, this is wonderful, Reina, but why are they so sad? And I didn't have the language or the capacity to like really just say to my mom at that time, mommy, this, it's because I'm sad. Like, <laughs> I am very sad. There's a lot of shit going on. <laughs> um, and I hope that it's okay that I use the, the full breadth of my la language, expletives included every now and then. Everything's okay. Awesome. Um, but yeah, the, um, there was a lot of like familial drama um, going on, a lot of things that... Um, uh, were traumatic as a young person. Um, and my way of, of coping and figuring my way out um, through that was around writing. Um, and there were also these like complexities around um, identity. So being Afro-Boricua and like, what does it mean to be woman within my family and the layers of colorism and racism and um, the dynamics of gender and misogyny within my own family. Um, that definitely had a huge impact on me growing up and my way of making sense of it um, and figuring my way through to, to a place of, of ongoing and, and full journey healing, which is not complete. It is definitely a journey, was through writing. Um, I hope that answers your question. It does. And so you remember that first poem. Yeah. Do, you re do you remember understanding that it was a poem? Like, so you said you wrote fiction. How did you understand the difference and, and how did that feel inside? Yeah. Um, so I remember definitely like, here's a poem, here's fiction. With the world of fiction, I was doing a lot of, of fantasy writing, um, writing into a world that was not mine um, and dreaming into something else. Uh, which I think is also something that I'm, I'm growing into of, of, of um, being, of honoring what the dream is because it is the potential for reality. It is the thread into the making of something. You have to start with the dream. Um, and so I understood then the difference between fiction um, and poem and that the poem held more um, immediate language for that was pulsing with emotion was pulsing with um sense and it didn't necessarily have to be linked to like a narrative structure or the sentence structure that it could live as its own in the purity of its language and and maneuvering that like i understood that even then um and I know that because I have always been a journal writer and I, and as I said, I'm a hoarder. So I keep all, especially around papers and books. Um, so I have all of these journals from my entire life since I was eight, I've only ever lost and they were devastating like two journals. Um, uh, but like being able to look back and be like, oh, I was so concerned with the boys <laughs> for such a long time. <laughs> <laughs> or I was so like concerned with the external world looking at me rather the reflective space of like what was I doing and what uh, who is this being becoming um so or tracking to the to the point of even minutes at points in my journaling of like how long it took me to walk to this place or where was I going I'm, I'm 
I'm very analytically um, uh, driven sometimes. Um, so my journals of my youth are really more um, like one line reflections, but looking back of being like, okay, there's a very clear understanding of what is what um, in that time. Um, Without my glasses, all the world becomes Monet, a fine pierced window in the Hararat's dome. Its pointed star to conjure a summer night softens to pulsing circle that enchants the steam to hiss and rise. On the hot marble, my glasses lie useless. The first wave of heat enough to fog me near blind, so even my eyes are naked. I simulate delicate decorum. Soon I am near splayed as the sweat forms rivulets running down all this reddening earth. My forehead hosts liquid pebbles. I turn and press to gray marble, smoothed by the skin of generations. The small becomes a newly formed lake. Tiger marks stretch at my hips for the first time. I am not ashamed of patterns. I am surrounded by taut and hang girls in their play and crones whose bodies have glowed, carried, burst, mourned. My breasts are among many breasts. We are a tribe of sweat. The attendant calls for me over, calls me over for my turn of lemon scented suds and the raw scrape of loofah mitts until the dead flakes crust in rolled balls of dirt. She washes them away with vigorous hand over and over again. I have never been touched this way by a woman, intimate and rough in the cleansing. I am steeped in citrus spray from head to toe. She pulls my hair as she washes, then leads me to the fount, fills a metal bowl with cold clean. She sets to her ruthless work, erasing the frizzle of soap. She points the way back to the dark pool, the heated waters where nymphs were descending. I dangle my feet a while. Those bathing look hungry for flesh. The slab receives my meditation again, pulsing stars in a cloud stone dome, the scent of lemon and musk, heated air so thick as to swim. When the salty slick returns, I feel out shining bowl and the frigid feel the silk that stretches across muscle and bone. to talk to me today about all things poetry and prose is none other than Lang Liev. The inspirational woman is the author of six poetry collections as well as two works of fiction, topping bestseller charts worldwide, propelling her into the media eye with features in publications including the Sydney Herald, the New York Times and Vogue, as well as Prime TV airtime on CNN and SBS Australia. She's also the winner of the Qantas Spirit of Youth Award and Goodreads Choice Award. Please welcome international superstar Lang Liev. Hi, thank you, Kelly. I'm really <laughs> happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, so I was, as you know, born in a refugee camp when my parents were fleeing the Khmer Rouge regime. We emigrated to Australia and settled in Cabramatta. I'm sure you've heard of heard of Cabramatta. Uh, it was an interesting time in the 90s. You know, I, I remember my childhood as a very happy one. It was very multicultural and I, I had friends from all over the world, mostly from war-torn countries. Um, so it was an interesting mix. But, um, you know, I wouldn't have it any other way. I, I have wonderful memories growing up. So I, I spent most of my, my formative years in, in Sydney where I founded a, um, a fashion label, Akina, and it won the Qantas Spirit of Youth Award. And then I went on to win the Churchill Fellowship. So fashion seemed like the track that I was going down for a while. But I don't know, something just, um, I guess, just pulled me back to writing. And it is great because it, it, it's always been my first love. And, and it's something that I've always consistently done in my life. And 
even with Akina, which was a fashion label, but it was still very much interwoven with poetry and words and stories. Um, so it was really great that, that I went back to that. Uh, I started exhibiting artwork. I've always had a passion for drawing and painting. So that was a different creative track that I went down for a while. And even then the, the writing was, was, the, was the one consistent thing, you know, in all my creative work. And then I met my partner, my, my current partner, Michael, uh, he was living in New Zealand at the time. So we were just talking for, I think it was almost a year. And then I guess we just fell in love and I moved over here. And that was 10 years ago and I've been here ever since. It's a beautiful part of the world <laughs> as well, isn't it? Especially for a writer, you couldn't ask for nicer scenery than New Zealand. Oh, absolutely. I feel mm. really blessed. I think it's, you don't have to go really far out of the city to feel like you're in the country. Um, yeah it's very green here and it's just it's a it's a lot more low-key and quiet smaller uh, and more intimate which I think suits me yeah beautiful and you you had your first book come out during your time in New Zealand in 2013 I believe but um love and misadventure yeah. what, what what was your sort of breakthrough with that book coming into publication well there was a um, social media platform tumblr which still exists now but back then it was one of the biggest social media platforms and it, it, all social media platforms will have their personality uh they're all different in their own little way and tumblr was quite introverted so it was um it was a perfect place i guess to share creative creative work so i i posted some of my poetry onto tumblr and um, submitted it to a few literary blogs and it i mean i don't want to say overnight but it it just um, suddenly the work just went viral. And all of a sudden I, I was just getting just emails pouring in constantly um, and people asking for a book. So that, that was how I, I came to publish my first book, Love and Misadventure. It was self-published and I, I was hoping to sell a few copies, but I ended up selling a lot more than what I thought I would. And it started to make best-selling charts and um, it attracted attention of, of New York literary agents. And then I signed up with Writer's House in New York and I had a publishing deal within a couple of days. So it all happened very fast. Mm. Um, I think in the, if there was this one week period that I remember where everything kind of happened at once. I remember waking up to a message from the head buyer of Barnes & Noble, which was really surreal <laughs> yeah. in that week. But wow, and, um, you know, he was just inquiring about my book. And then in that same week, I, I got my agent and the publishing deal. So everything happened in that in that one week. It was like this this crazy, I, I don't know, it was just a, a week where it felt like all my dreams were coming true. Yeah. <laughs> I know that sounds a little bit silly, but no, that's how no. I, I remember it looking back. Yeah, and everything went on from there. It just went from strength to strength. Um, and I guess it just slowly became part of my life um I was invited I've been invited to so many places all around the world so my writing has taken me everywhere which has been really wonderful um and even you know back home to Australia where I did the Sydney Writers Festival a couple of years ago which was really special for me having my friends and family in the audience mm, beautiful and it's gone beyond viral it's now two million more than two million followers that's way beyond viral so it's definitely and you've got this crazy beautiful fan base that uh yeah. turn out in their droves and camp out overnight mm. and really yeah. want, to, want to hear your poetic voice and I, I think you mentioned about technology about the digital poetry which you were one of the first sort of people to embrace that and you know, bring yeah. this, this wonderful sort of um, simplistic form to the screen and, you know, it was yeah. aesthetically pleasing and it, mm. it took social media by storm. But I, I think it also has attracted this wonderful crowd of, you know, all demographic of people and especially a, a youth audience yeah. as well, which probably mm. traditionally never sort of followed the poetry genre. Um, yeah. Do, you, do yeah. you think you've been a big part of that huge resurgence? I mean, poetry is really popular again right now, which I think is great. And you've been a part of yeah, that. Yeah, it's fantastic. Mm. Yeah, I remember when Love and Misadventure came out, it was sitting next to Shakespeare and Poe. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are many bookshops that didn't even have a poetry section. So it, it was just um, such a crazy thing to have happened. Um, and no one really saw it coming. I remember going on my book tours and 
you know, talking to people on the ground, to booksellers, and they were saying, like, it was really difficult for them to convey to their superiors that this book was really taking off because they just couldn't associate that with poetry. Mm. So that that's one of my, my earliest memories, um, you know, when, when things were really taking off for me. Um, and I remember one, one moment when I was... Um, I was about to start one of my first um, book signings and um, they took, they brought me out onto the stage and then there was just like several levels of people there and they were all cheering and then I just thought, oh my God, this is like beyond anything I'd ever imagine. And that was the moment that I knew that poetry would change my life. Mm, I think it's changed a lot of lives, hasn't it? And um, I, I've read somewhere that your love poems are so popular, they're even being read out at wedding ceremonies around the world as matrimonial vows. I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah, it is. It's wonderful. Mm. And I, I think it's just that it, it just speaks to to um, the power of poetry and how it connects us as people. There's something so human about about poetry and I think that's such a lovely thing that it's getting that resurgence yeah that's right do, do you have a, a love poem that's a favorite or that you've got a poem that's most commonly asked for by your your fan base you've got a good one <laughs> um yeah <laughs> and coincidentally it's September at the moment but September love is my most requested and it's probably the um you know everyone has their own favorites but it's probably the crowd favorite mm. Um, yeah, and it was a, it was actually a piece that, uh, I was asked to write by a publication, um, to submit for the September issue, but it didn't make it into the September issue. So they asked me if I could change the title to October Love. And then I just said, absolutely not. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm really glad because I got to keep the poem and I ended up writing something else um, for the October issue. Um, and it, it's just one of, one of those poems that... Yeah, good for you. And it's definitely had airtime since, so you were right. <laughs> yeah. do, do you want to read it for us? That would be just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. September, love. How many years must we put between us to prove we are no longer in love? How many summers and Septembers, distractions and chance meetings? Remnants of our sad, hopeful love in another's look and all too familiar gesture. How long do we go on dragging our bodies day after day through this yawning, yearning world, searching for a glimpse of what could have been? Tell me there has been someone else like me for you that your experience of love has not been defined by the way I spoke your name into the hollow of your neck. Ask me and the same kind of reverence anywhere else but in your slow, patient hands, your sea salt lips spilling laughter mid-sentence, my heart rising in a crescendo like a wave ready to crash. Has you whispered to me, love is the only thing that time cannot touch. After all this time, my love for you burns constant and true. My guiding light, my morning star. Time is testament to the relentless unyielding power of this old ancient love. A love I will carry with me from eons to oceans to inches back to you. You've been listening to a special edition of Wordsmith Poetry Podcast with Miriam Hechtman and Kelly Van Nelson. With music by Jessica Chapnick Khan. Poems included in this episode were The Death of Slam by Tabani Schumer, The Blue of God's Fucking Eyes by Ali Whitelock, Still Life with First Best Friend by Joshua Bennett, Symbolitas Hamami by Raina Leon September Love by Lang Liev Thank you for joining us 